Good morning, church. Happy to be sharing the word with you. Uh, I have a tradition of always calling out a student uh, when I'm up here preaching, and I didn't write one in, so I'm going to do it right now off the cuff. Uh, it was really funny this morning. Danica was asking me if I, she's so mad if I was nervous. She was like, have you ever preached like in front of the congregation before? I was like, yeah, here, three times. Glad you took good notes. <laughs> Love you, Danica. Uh, well, church, let us dive in. We're going to be in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse thir- starting in verse 13. But before we, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you are gracious to reveal yourself to us in your word. You are the creator, the ruler, the sustainer of all things. You did not have to reveal yourself to us, but you chose to, not just in your word, but in your son, Jesus Christ. You took on flesh, became a man, lived a life we never could, and died the death that we deserved. So Father God, in the light of those truths, focus our hearts, focus our minds. Let us see you and know you more. Let us be more like Jesus when we leave this place than we were when we walked in. Father God, do not let people hear my words, but let them hear your own. Quiet my heart, Lord. In your son's name we pray. All God's people said, amen. So I have this theory. Okay, well, first of all, I know that Brent already talked about the best version of the Grinch, which is the live action version. Um, I was expecting like some booze or something. Uh, so anyway, but uh, I also really love the live action version of the Grinch. And I have this theory that everybody has what I call the Cindy Lou Who Christmas. I know a lot of you are probably wondering what that means. But in the movie, Cindy Lou Who, she sings this song called... Where are you Christmas? Someone started singing it called Where Are You Christmas? Where she is like lamenting the fact that she is like, oh, I don't, I don't feel it. It doesn't feel like Christmas. Like the trees are up. I've got all these presents, but it just, it doesn't feel like Christmas time. And she is just so, she's searching. It's not exciting. It's not, it's not joyful. It's just another day. And she's like, what, what is Christmas about? Where has it gone? She's looking for meaning beyond trees and presents, and she comes up short. She just, like, hangs out with this green dude for the rest of the movie. But I think a lot of times we have Cindy Lou Who, we have at least a Cindy Lou Who Christmas, where it's like getting around to December, and where usually when you were a kid, you were really excited, you were really jazzed. You're like, oh, what am I going to get? You're like, I don't, really, I don't really know. I don't really care. It's just some stuff and some trees and some people that I see once a year. For me, it was uh, one year, we'd opened presents. I remember, I remember very distinctly, we were at my aunt and uncle's house, and we had just opened presents, and we'd eaten, and people were, like, asleep, and I was awake, and they were, like, you know, doing, you know, putting leftovers away and stuff, and I was sitting there, and I just thought, is this it? This is Christmas? It's like that Paul McCartney's, no, no, John Lennon's song, so this is Christmas? I was like, so this is Christmas? It's just eating and getting stuff and then putting leftovers away? So... I really just didn't feel it. And a lot of you are in this room thinking, it's December 29th. Stop talking about Christmas. Because for some of us, Christmas is not just like lost or gone. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's draining. You're saying, Ryan, move on. Talk about 2020, the new decade, which is not actually the new decade, by the way. Uh, The new decade doesn't start until 2021. If you want to know more information about that, talk to me after the service. Um, Just saying. But Christmas is, it's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. I don't even have kids. I don't have kids. I'm not married, and I was tired after Christmas. 
And so I can't even imagine what you families or you parents are out there. You got to buy stuff. You got to keep the kids happy. And they're like playing in the box instead of with the toy you bought them. You're like, what the heck? Why did I even spend this money? I could have just got you a box. So if you're feeling that way, I'm really sorry because what I'm about to say might freak you out. And I'm really glad that we sang carols this morning. I'm really glad we have these poinsettias up. I'm really glad we have all this decoration because here's what's actually true about Christmas. We are always celebrating Christmas. Christmas never ends for Christians. We are always recognizing the advent, the preparation of the coming Christ. Just as Israel for hundreds of years was waiting, they were saying, where is our Messiah? Where is our Messiah? Where is our Messiah? We are always waiting for a coming of Christ, for a final Christmas. We're always preparing. The waiting and aching and hoping that Brent talked about on Christmas Eve, that still stands. We're still waiting and and aching and hoping because even though he's already come once, he's promised to come again. So in a sense, we're always like Cindy Lou Who. We're always asking, where are you Christmas? But what does that actually look like? How does that change our lives? How does that change our hearts? I think Paul talks about it uh, in Philippians 3. So uh, Philippians 3, 13 through 21, uh, the apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes a letter to the Christians, to the church in Philippi, and he says this. I'm gonna use my actual Bible. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul, he's giving us this image of Christian living. He's saying we're waiting for the Lord to come and restore our body, and these are the ways that we prepare and we wait. This is what anticipation for the coming kingdom reveals in our life. It's not passive, it's not our own, it's not condemnation, it's not guilt, and it's not just moral goodness or or righteousness. This is what Christian waiting looks like. Hear this. Christian waiting is a radical pursuit of Christ that ignores our past It demands our present and it secures our future. Let me say that again. Christian waiting is a radical pursuit of Christ that ignores our past, demands our present, and secures our future. Only when we see that our waiting is not in vain and it's not of ourselves can we really prepare and live our lives as if we are waiting and anticipating Christ's return. So the first instruction that Paul gives is he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I've done nothing on myself, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind. The first thing, the first aspect of us waiting and preparing is that we forget our past. We ignore our past. In the words of of Kylo Ren from Star Wars, the best Star Wars, The Last Jedi, he says, kill the past. We have to forget it, right? I had to throw a little Star Wars in for Brent. He's probably watching. 
So he says, forget the past. So, and Paul lives this. He's the living truth of this. Because previously in the letter, he goes, he goes on and on. He says, though I have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying, I had it good. I did a great job. Then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he outlines this moral goodness, all this really hard work he did, and he's pointing to things. He said, look how righteous, look how holy I was. Don't you think I know that, the coming, that, that Christ is coming, that I knew? He says, I wrote this, I think it's a good joke. He says, you think you're really holy? Hold my Bible, watch this. And you and I do the same thing every single day. We look at our past and we say, look at that good thing I did. I've been to church every Sunday. I've been two times this week, one on Christmas Eve and the Sunday after Christmas. Don't I, aren't I preparing myself for the coming kingdom? Look at all these good, moral, religious things I've done. I'm always here. I'm always serving in kids or students or music or the kitchen. Look how righteous and holy I am. But Paul flips the script on that. He doesn't just say that those good things that you've done are morally neutral. He says that they are loss. They're not wins. They're not ties. They're loss. It's not that they don't matter, but they actually detract from the message that he is now proclaiming in Christ Jesus. And and for some of us, dying to our idols of self-made righteousness is the first step in pursuing Christ. You cannot pursue Christ while you are building your own kingdom, while you are building yourself up. We need to start looking towards the work that Christ did, not the work that we are currently doing. That is the security and the hope of our righteousness. That is why Paul says, kill the past. Don't look behind you. But some of us, some of you have been like, that's not me at all. I don't ever look at my past and think, oh, I'm really good, Ryan. I look in the past and I think the opposite. I I say, I'm not good. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I, I'm a failure. I'm a screw-up. We see times we've sinned. We've seen times we've failed, the times we've broken promises, and they just remind us of how we're not worth anything. And, and worse, you see all these other people in the church who are doing all these great, awesome things and saying, look at these great, awesome things, and, and they work so hard, and they work so well, and they serve, and they don't complain, and I can't quit complaining. I can't quit being bitter. I can't quit being angry or whatever sin it is you struggle with. Paul is saying the same thing to that as he is to the self-righteousness. Leave the past behind. Those things, those sins, those screw-ups, they are forgotten. Quit looking behind you. Do you guys ever rubberneck when you're driving? You're like, you're like, you see like sirens or something, you're like, like trying to look. So no lie, there's this infamous intersection in Louisville. Uh, and there's like always a wreck. It's right by, it's right by seminary. There's, it's ever, there's always wrecks there. And I was sitting at a stoplight one time and there was a wreck over here to my left. I was sitting at the stoplight and it's just like a fender bender. And the police officer that was there was like just finishing up and she was going to get in her car. This is her walking to her car. And she's going to get in her car. And I, I kid you not, I, I watched this happen. A car is watching the wreck, like where the wreck was and hits another car. Just like, boom, rear ends this guy. And so then the cop is like, literally closing your door. She just goes, and just walks back over. So this person was staring at the wreck over there, and they, and they just, 
boom, gotten a wreck of their own. We, do the, we spend so much time looking at other people's lives, looking at other people's deeds, whether they're good or they're bad, that we end up wrecking ourselves. Our lives are not marked by what we have done for the kingdom, but it's rather marked by what the king has done for us. We don't need to look at other people's works or other people's bad deeds to make ourselves feel better. We don't need to find our identity in anything but this. Our identity, our most identifiable feature, the one thing, this is the one thing that matters most to Christians, is that they were made, they were seen, they were known, and they were loved so much by God that he sent his son to die for them. That is where your identity is. That is how you are marked. It's not success, it's not failure, but our success is marked by a manger and a cross and an empty tomb. We focus too much on what lies behind and never what lies ahead. A lot of times we're asking the question, did I do a good job, am I good enough, when we should really be asking the question, what's next? Because the Christian life is not just one of forgetting the past, killing the past, and then moving on with our life as a different person. New year, new me. You guys ever hear that? That's not, that's not what the Christian life is about. A secular person can, can see they've messed up and, and change their ways. The aspect that sets us apart from the rest of the world is what our life looks like now in the waiting. And what, is it, what does it look like? What do we do? How do we live our lives? Well, Andrew Peterson is a, uh, is a singer-songwriter. We sing, Rachel, where's Rachel? Sings a song, she's like, hey. Uh, sings this song he writes every year uh, called Labor of Love. And he just released a book. And in his book, he talked about how um, he went on one of those ancestry websites and he was like wanting to find like his family. And, and so he goes and he finds out he's from Scotland and he actually like meets some distant relatives of his uh, that are from Scotland and, and gets in contact with him. And he finds out that there was actually a Peterson ancestral home in Scotland. He was like, oh, I gotta see this. Like, this is where I'm from. This is my family. These are my people. And so he starts, you know, doing all this research, looking at maps of Scotland. He's, he's talking to people who are from the area. And finally, he gets in contact with this dude who is like, lives roughly in the area where the Peterson ancestral home uh, stood. And he said, hey, can you like help me find this, where, where, where this home is? And he's like, yeah, great. And so him and his whole family, they pack up, they go to Scotland and they meet this guy and they get on bikes and they're going through like the woods. And the, the man, like the guide, is, ask, is like acting really weird when they're looking for this home. Because you think when you're looking for a home, you're like looking ahead. Like you're looking up. You're like, all right, I'm looking for a house. Or like, a, like maybe Andrew Peterson's like, maybe it's like a castle or something. We can move in. This will be awesome, right? But the guy's looking at the ground. He's like going around this forest. He's like just looking down. He's like, yeah, yeah, not over here. Yeah, and then he's like, oh, I see one. Andrew Peterson's like, what is he talking about? He says, I see a berry. Dude, we're not here looking for berries. We're looking for a castle so I can live there with my family. He says, no, 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 no. He goes, you see, your ancestral home is gone. It's probably not there anymore. But the foundation is still there. And, and the chemicals that are in this foundation, they cause these berries to grow. And they're markers. We can follow these berries to find where the foundation was. And, and we can get you to your ancestral home. So eventually, they're, you know, they're following these berries. And, and they find the home. And... Of course, the guy was right. It's gone. It's just woods. And, but there's all these berries around, right? The, the, the berries that showed where the house had been. And so I, I read that story. I was on a plane, and I thought, what are the markers? You know, we talk about building our lives on the foundation of the gospel, on stone, not sand. And I think, what are the berries that mark my life? 
What is the foundation causing to grow around me? What are the, the berries of my life? Are they success, financial peace? Are they, they a good family? Or were they, were they different? Were they of, of doubt or were they of, of self-loathing? But here are the markers that matter, and here's how we live in the waiting of Christ. The only markers in our life that matter are the ones that point to the good foundation, the foundation of the gospel. So we may try to build our lives in these like short generations, like an ancestral home that will be gone, be destroyed. But our foundation will remain, and the markers of that foundation will show what it was. So in verse 13, Paul gives us specific markers. He doesn't say, hey, here's what to do, but he gives us markers of the Christian lives. What do we see growing in the forest if the right foundation is laid? If we're looking ahead, we're striving ahead for for Jesus. This is not a passive waiting, it's a fight, a vigorous fight. What are the markers of us fighting, pursuing, and chasing Jesus? And I think he gives us three markers, starting in verse 14. Uh, The first one is he, he calls us to continue to grow. So to come to Christ, we must continue to grow because we know that we are broken, we're sad, we're messed up people, and we are in need of a great Savior, like a really good one. This is going to take a lot to save someone like me. But this is not a one-time only event. A lot of times we think, yeah, ABCs, uh, C is confess your sins, you're broken, and you're done. Like, right, we've, we've confessed. But what Paul says here is that we are constantly recognizing that if we are striving for Christ, we are always growing. We can never be the same. If we truly believe that we have nothing to improve upon, then we have nothing to strive for. You cannot strive for Christ if you think you're good. Like the top athletes in the world, like LeBron James does not spend his week uh, you know, practicing, working really hard, has spent his whole career, and now he's at the top, he's the best player in the NBA, and then he's just like, nah, I'm not gonna practice. Like, we don't spend our lives getting to the top to then just give up, to, to get to some arrival and then say, I'm done. No, we have to continue to work and to practice and to pursue and to fight and to grow in maturity. And if, if you are in Christ and you are not acknowledging your need for growth, then you're probably already off the bandwagon and you are in for a rude awakening coming in. The good news of Jesus Christ is something that we should revel in daily, not just every once in a while. The beauty of the gospel constantly keeps us on the hook. We're never satisfied. We're never content. We always want to be more and more and more and more like Jesus and and recognizing that none of this comes from us. I didn't do any of this. None of these good works uh, are, are, are of me. We do not build ourselves up, but we recognize the only reason that we want to strive or even the only reason we can strive is because the God of the universe first wanted and suffered and fought and strove and pursued us. He became a baby, he died a gruesome death, he rose again and he promises to come back and make everything good for us, for his church. So just as he has pursued us or is currently pursuing you, so we should turn and pursue him, strive. That is what keeps us from complacency. That is what holds us in this waiting, this dark period between the comings of Christ where we're saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? I can't see you working. That story, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection holds our attention and calls us to righteousness every single day. So we continue to grow, but then second, verse 
15 and 16, he says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us, let us hold true to what, he, what we have attained. So not only does it shape the way we live and the way we grow, but it also shapes the way that we think and the way that we believe and the way that we love. Right, like a lot of times, we, we talk about truth a lot here, right? Like we really value the truth, the truth of the gospel. And we would all say, yeah, man, I love the truth. I'll be honest. Sometimes I hate to hear the truth. Just the other day, I was, I was talking to Brad Weaver, and uh, I said, uh, I was talking about the Dallas Cowboys, and I was like, man, if they win, if they win, we're going to the playoffs. And he was like, mm, I don't think that's true. I said, no, man, all we've got to do is win, and we'll get to the playoffs. And I said, that's true. He was like, I, I think you have to win, and the Eagles have to lose. I was like, no, that is not true. And we looked it up, I was wrong. See, a lot of times when we're confronted with truth, it shows us that we're actually wrong. We live in a culture that really hates the truth. They're really anti-truth. You can just pick your truth. It doesn't really matter what's actually true because the truth belongs to you. You're the arbiter of truth. But Paul, he writes and he understands that there is only one truth. And that living according to that truth, which is the truth, is a key marker of living our lives in this waiting period. Verse 15 says that if we are mature, so if we are growing, if we're striving after Christ, then we will think this way. We will think that uh, what he has just said in, in, verse, in verse 14, that pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that is our goal. That is the truth. If we're mature, we'll think that way, that our lives fully belong to God. Not just some parts of our lives, not just the spiritual parts or the parts that people see or the parts that we don't like or the parts that people don't see, but every aspect of our life, private, public, it all belongs to Christ. And our prayer is that if we do not believe that that is true, if there are parts of our life that we are holding on to and we say, yeah, Jesus, you can't actually have that part, then we pray to God that the Holy Spirit will come and convict our hearts to the truth and correct our path. That's what he means when he says, God will reveal that also to you. That's a really nice way of saying, he'll fix that. You may not believe it's true, but it's true, and God will show you. Paul knows that there will be attacks on the truth of the gospel in this waiting period between the comings of Christ. He knows that only one thing really matters, and there will be attacks. People will tell you that it's how cool you are or how successful or rich you are. They'll tell you that it's political power or championing these issues uh, that these are the things that will, will mark your life, will make you feel safe, will make you feel comfortable. But Paul knows that's not the case. That it's our job to follow the truth and cling to it only. We're to hold on to the gospel like it's a life preserver and you will drown without it. If you know you're in the middle of the ocean and you have a life preserver and that's the only thing, it's like when, when they show you like the seat is gonna be an inflatable in, in planes, right? You just clutch onto that thing. It would take someone ripping it from your cold, dead hands to get the truth of the gospel from you, the values of the gospel, the values of the kingdom. You will not let go. Cling to it. Love it. Nothing else matters. That devotion, that love of the truth is, is a mark of one eagerly waiting for the return of Christ the King. So we grow in maturity, we cling to the truth, and lastly, verses 17 through 19, we follow godly examples. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. He's talking about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's saying, we, we set a good, um, a good record for you. You can follow us, you can believe in us. 
Then he says, for many, I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This is very practical, good advice. This, this is really clear. Follow good Christian leader. But it's really hard to follow because our world doesn't have many of them. Paul points at Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself, and he says, look, we are to be imitated, but they are not the kind of people that our culture looks at and values and says, let's follow those people. Paul was a murderer, and he claimed that he'd been transformed uh, by the gospel of Jesus through a blinding light, and now he's in prison. Quick show of hands. How many of you would be like, yeah, my Christian mentor, they're in prison. I'm super proud of it. Yeah, that's what I thought. We don't, we don't look at people who are in prison and think, that's who I'm going to follow. But, but, but Paul is saying, look to me. I am a good Christian leader to follow. We look to leaders. We look to power. We, we look for charisma. We look for a, a, a can-do attitude. We want someone that can, can lead us to something great, that can make us great in the eyes of men. But those are not the qualities of Paul or of Timothy or even Jesus. Because the kingdom qualities that, that Jesus tells us look like, look like this. If we want to live our lives following leaders, waiting for the coming kingdom, this is what our, those leaders will look like. They'll be meek. I think our modern culture would say weak. They appear weak. They're hungry for righteousness. They want it. They want to be righteous. Doesn't say they're always righteous, but they want it. They're hungry for it. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They don't stir things up. These are the values of the church, and we have failed to elevate leaders who resemble God's kingdom a lot of the time. We've advocated for, we've defended, and followed people who look more like the enemies of the cross that Paul is describing than the ones who look like Paul. Christ, we are, church, we need to search our heart and follow those who value Christ and his kingdom. Those are the people to look at. Those are the people to follow. But we also must recognize that our life is not our own to delegate. That if we are in Christ, our loyalty is not to self, but, to king, but is to the kingdom of God, which has one leader, and that is Christ the king. So we, we continue to grow. We cling to the truth, and we follow godly examples. So this in-between period, we've been waiting for the first, we, we, we saw the first coming, and now we're waiting for the second coming, and we're living faithfully in the waiting. We're trying to be obedient. We're not looking to our past. We're, we're here. We're striving to the future. We're striving to Christ. We're trying to, to live with purpose in the gospel, looking to the future. That is the way we live. We, we gather on Sundays. We do all the things, and we try to live obediently to Scripture because of this statement in verse 20. This is why we do what we do. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We live as citizens now in the in-between period because we actually already are citizens Christ, in his first coming, he did establish his rule. He did prove himself Lord over all creation. He bested sin. He bested death. And now he is enthroned to heaven, in heaven above all things. We are already citizens of that kingdom. And it's easy to look into a new year, not a new decade, into a new year, 
and to be anxious or to be scared of what lies ahead. The unknown is really scary. We don't know what's going to happen in our lives. We don't know what's going to happen to our families or to our church or to the people around us. We don't know what 2020 holds, and that is terrifying. So we we grasp onto things. We, We lash out. We fight to keep things from changing and to keep them the same, but change always comes. Everything changes. New Year's bring brings new failures and sufferings and anxieties. The the waiting is is dark. We don't know what comes next. We look around and we say, where is God? This world is broken and it is twisted. But the waiting period is not without an ending. See, we have a promise, the source of our joy, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, get this, by the power that enables himself to even to subject all things to himself. He's given us a promise. He's not just going to make us new, but he's going to make all things new. There is a world, church, that has no death. It has no sin. It has no sickness. It has no fighting. It has no war. It has no broken hearts. It has no tears. It has no cancer. And it's real. And it's not just real. It's coming. Because the same God who promised that he would come through the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent at the beginning of time, the God who promised a conquering king from the line of David, the God who promised a sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world, God kept all his promises in an infant in a manger on Christmas. If he made good on that promise, we can, make, we can know for sure that he's going to make good on his promises again. We can be sure that this waiting period, this in-between time is just as he has told us. We don't have to be scared of the future because we know it. We don't have to fear the end of the story because it's already been written. Our future is secure, church, in the power of Christ, the Lord Jesus who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by his power that enables himself to subject all things, all things. So church, if that is true, isn't that worth celebrating and remembering all year long? Not just once a month, not just a day or just one day a year, but living every single day of our lives as ones who have hope. We can live free of our past. We can serve a good king with our present, and we can live unafraid of the future because it has been promised and paid for. Church, Advent isn't over. Christmas isn't over. We, like Israel, are waiting for a king to come and make all things new. We don't celebrate Christmas once a year. We celebrate it every day. And as we strive to live in the reminder of Christ's second coming, we live in waiting. But in our waiting, we pursue him. We lay good foundations. We don't build cardboard castles that are going to get washed away. And we hope and we pray that our fervent obedience will lead markers of gospel truth for others to follow. We ignore the past. We use our whole life to pursue Christ, and we know that a good future is secure. See, that's the difference between us, the church, and Cindy Luhu. As she lost the emotion and the feeling of Christmas, she thought it was gone. Poof. Why can't I find you? But we know that Christmas is never really gone. It's not really over until Christ returns. And that our hope is not found in a celebration or in a tree or in a present or in lights or or even in carols, but rather in a baby in a stable who was the ruler of all things and is going to come again. 
So we can go into 2020 lying in wait, waiting for the return of Christ, pursuing him with our whole lives, and we never have to ask the question, where are you Christmas? All we have to do is simply plead, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you have told a great story, and you are continuing to tell it to this day, but we know that there is a great ending coming when you will make all things new. So God, give us the wonder, give us the obedience, give us the faithfulness that we can follow you. We can grow in you, mature in you, look more like you. We can love your truth, cling to it, like our life depends on it because it does. does, Father God. God, and then give us the faith to follow leaders who maybe don't look like the world. Let us follow imitators of Jesus. And let us follow Jesus the King. Father God, it, it is your story. You are in charge. But you have promised us a beautiful day. So let us live in that waiting, not as sad, not as depressed, not as anxious or lost, Father God, but as those who have hope, who can cling to the cross and the promise that was made of all things new, all things good. You are good, Father God, and for that we are thankful. It's in your son's name we pray.